I speak to you in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. A little over two years ago, I placed a call to one of my favorite people. I called my dad. Beginning the conversation like I normally do, I asked my father how he was doing and received what felt like a pretty surprising response. I'm doing great, he said. I've been walking the Camino de Santiago, the way of St. James. I've been at it a little over a week now, and I'm already 60 miles in. Not expecting my dad to make a surprise trip to Spain, let alone in summer 2020, when trips abroad were being canceled left and right due to the pandemic. I must admit, I was somewhat puzzled by this news. But you see, you see, what my dad failed to say at first, but later explained, is that he was virtually walking the Camino. He was virtually walking it. Turns out, if you don't know, there's a fitness app you can download to your phone or smartwatch that allows you to log miles toward a simulated pilgrimage or journey. And there are loads of options for your trip. You can bike across the United States or swim the English Channel if you want. Or you can even, even walk the Camino, just like my dad. At the end of each workout, all you simply have to do is pause, enter the number of miles you've completed, and in return, the app will tell you what city or town you're in or give you the remaining distance to your next landmark. Like many fitness-related innovations, the assumption the app is working from is that you're more likely to exercise and keep at it if you have a goal or some larger motivation to strive towards. And relatedly, it probably makes sense that you might be better equipped to achieve what you've set out to do if there is a clear and simple tool that will help you track your progress along the way. Thinking about my dad, he's a guy who likes to stay active. And so I have no doubt that for him, staying healthy was a powerful motivator to walk the Camino, virtually or otherwise. But what I also know, what I also know is that for him, and hopefully for all of us, is that the strength of one's help 
is not just about the physical, but about the spiritual too. I think his faith was a powerful motivator as well. If you're not familiar, the Camino de Santiago, the way of St. James, is widely considered a bucket list item for thousands, if not millions of people. Every year, people from all over the world journey to Europe to make this pilgrimage, and the reasons for doing so, religious or otherwise, have continued to evolve. So why make the trip? Well, like many good stories, this one at times can seem a bit mythic. According to the official account, the official history of the pilgrimage maintains that the body, the mortal remains of St. James the Apostle, are in fact buried at the Cathedral in Santiago de Compostela. And why Spain of all places? Great question. According to the account, it is believed that James, son of Zebedee and brother of St. John the Evangelist, was discovered in a field in Galicia by a shepherd, having died some 800 years earlier. Tradition holds that the saint's body was transported there by two disciples in a boat led by angels, where it was buried and later found. Yet stepping back for a moment, it continues to seem that whether it's this pilgrimage site or another, that more and more the reasons for making such a journey are limitless. For example, there's no reason to believe that you need to book hotels and buy a plane ticket to the Holy Land in order to follow Jesus or to truly be a disciple. But you might find that making a pilgrimage to the cities and towns where Jesus lived, that walking the roads, that experiencing the landscape, that meeting the people who live there now opens up the story for you. You might find new meaning in the scriptures when you stand, senses awakened from the vantage point of a pilgrim. In the case of the Camino, the way of St. James, and other examples where people have sought to physically trace the life of a saint praying with their feet. There's a sense that proximity to holy people, that following their paths literally and doing what they do, has the potential to reshape our lives and draw us closer to what really matters. Because whether you're on the journey of a week, a month, a lifetime, or even the journey of a day, as short as the length of time between breakfast and dinner, there are central questions that every pilgrimage is asking, either implicitly or explicitly. And those questions are, what is the distance between me and God? What is standing between us 
What is the distance between me and the holy? In our gospel passage from Luke, we pick up a conversation we've been having these past few weeks about the meaning of wealth. What's it for? Who's it for? How does it intersect with our understanding of morality? What are the dilemmas and pitfalls that hang over every discussion around money? Well, whether we're talking about then or we're talking about now, the image of the wealthy has always conjured certain images in our imaginations. There is a long history of equating affluence with virtue, and that comes from an understanding that making a profit and growing it requires some know-how. You have to be smart to be successful. You have to be hardworking. And there are a number of examples where that's true. In fact, my own family story contains one such example. My grandfather attended a school he would have never been able to afford, apart from an academic scholarship that changed his life. He worked hard, was given opportunities. Opportunities not everyone gets, to be sure, but he made good on the gifts given, and his hard work paid off. But at least part of what I think is happening in this story is an effort to decouple wealth and virtue, because one doesn't necessarily lead to the other, and we know that. Virtue is not determined by how much or how little we have. It's not determined by our employment or the degrees we hold or don't. Virtue, or what we might call baptismal living, comes from somewhere else. In the case of the rich man and Lazarus, the problem for the rich man is not just his wealth, but about his disregard for an understanding that believes and affirms that we all have certain baseline responsibilities to each other, and particularly so when it comes to the poor. Adorned in fine clothes, the rich man feasted sumptuously every day. In other words, this man every day had more to eat than he could possibly finish on his own. But he constantly ignored Lazarus, who clearly was not asking for a lot. Table scraps or food left over would have helped immensely. Truly a small ask, but the rich man denied it. Well, fast forward from this scene to the next chapter in the story, and what we find is a stunning reversal. Death eventually comes to greet both men, and when it does, it escorts Lazarus to a place of comfort, a place of honor with Abraham, while on the other hand, the rich man meets quite a contrast to the life he once knew, a sharp descent down to the depths, down to Hades. During the rich man's lifetime, 
his experience of the world was one that knew power and influence and a posture of authority that in many ways was just simply unquestioned. And one of the customs associated with this role, one he did not fulfill, was to give alms, to give offerings and assistance to the poor, to people like Lazarus. Yet even in death, even as he faces otherworldly torment as a consequence for caring only about himself, the thing that always amazes me about this story is that the rich man is still ordering Lazarus around. He still thinks he's in control. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water, to cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. I started with a story about a pilgrimage, not because I think you need to go somewhere to have an encounter with the divine, which is not to say that those trips can't still be meaningful. No, I started with a story about a pilgrimage because in the larger sense, if we're truly here seeking to follow Jesus, to live cruciform lives, then every one of us is on a pilgrimage right here, right now. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then I think it makes sense to return to those same questions I asked earlier, to return to the central questions that every pilgrimage is asking, either implicitly or explicitly. Yes, a pilgrimage asks, it asks all of us, what is the distance between me and God? What is standing between us? What is the distance between me and the holy? Picking up the story from our gospel passage, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke's Jesus gives us a pretty clear answer to that first question. What is the distance between me and God? Well, to put it one way, the way this story seems to answer it, the distance between you and God is whatever distance exists between you and your neighbor. That's the space that we're all being called to mind. At the end of days, the rich man is told that a great chasm has been fixed between where he is and where Lazarus now resides. But the truth is, it's the rich man, not God, who placed this chasm where it is. And he did so long before finding his way to the conversation with Father Abraham. He made that space wider every day. He chose power over compassion, self-interest over self-sacrifice, and greed over generosity. He made that space in his own lifetime, and now he is seeing it in a new way. 
Remembering again the fitness app my dad used to make his Camino, his pilgrimage, I still think there's a lot of wisdom in the idea that the app is working from. The notion that we're all a lot more likely to stick with it and weather the challenges of a long journey, fitness or otherwise, if we have a goal, some larger motivation to strive towards. Parsing this further, the allure of the app feels especially attractive to me. In a moment that seems overladen with uncertainty, be it political, social, economic, or otherwise, I want nothing more than to regain control. I want to know where in the world this is all headed. Wouldn't it be nice if we all got a notification telling us exactly where we are along the path of our larger journey? Wouldn't it be great if we knew how much farther we had to walk until we reached a place of rest, let alone a place of communion with God? Well, they have Moses and the prophets, Father Abraham said. They should listen to them. For if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even, even if someone rises from the dead. To translate that, to make a long story short, the truth is that God is already pinging us. He's sending us notifications all the time. Through the voices of the prophets, the wisdom of our scriptures, God is never lacking for ways to draw us into communion. Through our worship, through our larger biblical story, through every invitation to make the distance between us and our neighbors shorter, God is perpetually casting light on the road from us to him. While it may feel less present at times, our earthly pilgrimages are laden with meaning. They're filled to the brim with God's call on our lives. Because these paths are avenues towards claiming our baptisms in relationship with our neighbors, particularly the poor. Journeys we can make wherever we are. Yet whatever shape the road may take, be it as sweet and fragrant as a stroll through an orchard, or as arid and fearful as a walk along fractured plains, through it all, the gift that needs lifting up is the reminder that in every place, we will never ever be alone. We will never be alone because God is always recalling us to the object of our pilgrim longing. Jesus, the Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.